So we're in Genesis chapter number 22, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 1, and we're going to read just several passages, just kind of get a grip on the story. Now, let me do just a little bit of backstory as we dive into Genesis chapter number 22. Uh, We left off where last week, where we were talking about the family, and we were specifically dealing with why families fight. And how do we overcome that, that, those, those arguments, that tension? And we talked about the fact that Abraham and Lot and how Abraham and Lot dealt with the issues and how they fought. You see, we said that fighting, it starts because we live in a culture and a society that teaches us to fight. Everything is fight for your rights. It's fight for your values. And so we've kind of been brought up in that culture and that society. Well, once you step into the family, guess what you do? You fight for your rights in the family. And what happens is that creates this inner turmoil. We also said that when you fight for your rights in the family, unlike anywhere else in society, unlike anywhere else inside the family, when you win the argument, you really don't win. You win nothing. There's hurt feelings, there's bitterness, there's anger, there's discord, there's division. So when we say, I won the argument, that's all you want. And so we were talking about how do you make proper restitution? And we saw how Abraham handled the disagreement with Lot. Well, let's fast forward just a little bit. Chapter 21, Isaac is finally born. And if those of you that have know this, this story of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, they have been wanting to have children. And at 75 years old, God came to Abraham and said, hey, you're going to have children. Well, Isaac, uh, Abraham didn't have children until over 25 years later. He finally has the son Isaac in chapter 21. Well, in chapter 22, where we're going to pick up this passage, we're going to see what God asked Abraham to do with his son Isaac. And I'm entitled this message, Leaving a Legacy, Not a Liability. And let's jump into Genesis chapter 22, verse number 1. Here's what the Bible says. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell you of. Now, immediately, we're like, especially if we're not really familiar with the Bible, we're just kind of like, what is God doing? I mean, there's, there's instantly, there's just confusion. There's this uh, uh, emotion of, of, is this real? Would God really ask him to do this? And so keep following along. Here's what it says in verse number three. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And they clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I love the phrase that he says, hey, he's going to go worship. Now notice what Isaac or Abraham brings to worship God. Because a lot of times we come to church and we feel like, I worship God. The music was great. The bass guitar sounded great. The lead singer was great. Man, we just had a great time of worship. Notice the instruments that Abraham uses for worship, okay? And verse number seven and I in verse number six and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering that's an interesting worship music I, I, I instrument wood and he laid it upon Isaac his son and he took fire in his hand and a knife these are really interesting uh instruments for worship you see what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to realize that worship is not just the music and a lot of times you and I, we engage with church and we say, man, I had a great time at church we worship God my hands were up I was jumping I was doing a little dance I was doing a little jig and the reality is you you didn't worship God. 
Because here's the thing. You can't worship God if you didn't bring anything. I need you to understand something. Worship means you're bringing something to God, not something you take. And many times we come to church and we take the donuts, we take the coffee, we take the fellowship, we take the friends, we take, 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 take. And then we think, man, I just had a great time at church. But did you worship God? No, you took. What did you bring? Isaac said, I'm here to worship God. And he had something with him. What do you have to bring? Do you have your divided attention where you're thinking about the football game? Is that what you're bringing? Are you bringing your thoughts? I'd rather be anywhere but church this morning. What do you bring to God? Or are you bringing a heart that says, I'm here to worship. I'm here to engage. I'm here to serve. I'm here to involve. I've, I've, I've brought my offering to God. I'm ready to support the work and ministry financially. And I, I'm here to worship because I need you to change your thinking on worship. Because too many people go to church and they think, man, the band was on fire today. We worshiped. No, you didn't. Because if you relegate worship to only what happens in the first 15 minutes of service, no wonder your spiritual life and you and God have this big disconnect. Because that is not all that worship encompasses. Worship is what we bring, but then it's also something that we build. Because you're going to see in the next couple of verses, the Bible says that Abraham built an altar. It's something we bring and it's something we build. That was free. We're going to continue going with the message, okay? Now, notice if you would, verse number 7. Here's Abraham and, I, or, uh, Abraham and Isaac. They're about to go and they're going to worship God. And here's what the scripture says in verse number 7. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, I see fire, I see wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? We're going to go worship God. We're bringing all these things, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says something almost scandalous to his son. Notice verse number eight. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. This takes a lot of faith because God had told Abraham, take now your son, your only son, and offer him up for an offering. But Abraham believed God. He knew God was going to come up with another way. And he, by faith, told his son, God's going to provide a lamb. God's asked me to offer you up, but I know God's going to come up with a solution. I'm going to continue reading. If you want to follow me, you can. Verse number nine. And they came to the place which God had told them of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took a knife to slay his own son. And the angel of the Lord called out unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad. Neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withhold thy son, thine only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the lamb and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son. We're talking about leaving a legacy, not a liability. And in this passage, the final and fifth installment of our family series, we see that Abraham is teaching his son about something and teaching and raising his son and preparing his son for a future and preparing his son to to follow God even amidst of difficult circumstances. You see, when we, as we age, we start thinking about legacy, but I think too often we think about legacy too late in life. Because legacy has to do with the thought that one day you know you're going to be passed off the scene and you want to be able to say, yes, world of the future, I was here, here's my contribution, here's why my life mattered. That's what legacy does. 
But too often, instead of leaving a legacy to our children, we leave a liability. Some of you may remember the name Barry Madoff. He had the huge Ponzi scheme. He embezzled millions and millions of dollars. He's serving 170 years in prison. Here was a man whose one goal in life was how much wealth he could amass. And he was so concerned with amassing all this wealth to pass on to his family. The only problem, he cared so much about his wealth, he neglected his family. His oldest son died of leukemia in the age of 48. His next son, because of what his father had done, couldn't bear the pressure and the shame. And at 46, he committed suicide. So the two children that Barry Madoff had that he was going to leave all this wealth to, all this money to, weren't even there to enjoy it. You see, what I'm trying to get you to realize this morning, that instead of thinking about the inheritance you're going to leave your children, let's think about the heritage we're going to leave our children. Because it's one thing to have money, but that's not the main thing. Money is not what your children need. They need more than your money. The greatest thing you do for God may not be something you do. It may be someone you raise. Let me say that again this morning. The greatest thing you do for God may not be something you do, but someone that you raise. You may be sitting here and saying, I don't have children yet, or or, 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 I'm single, or I'm widowed, and we never had children. I want you to understand, we live in a day and age where there is a father crisis throughout the country. Find somebody to mentor. Find somebody to encourage. It may be a coworker. It may be somebody at your place of employment. It may be somebody at your school. But you can find somebody. Say, I'm going to pour my life into this person. I'm going to help this person. My father grew up without a dad. His dad died when he was very young. And so luckily for him, he had an uncle that would step in and said, hey, I'll teach you how to fish. I'll teach you how to change the oil. I'll teach you how to be a man. I'll teach you these things. Somebody stepped into his life so that he would know how to leave a legacy. But if we're going to leave a legacy, how do you do it? How are we supposed to leave this legacy that we know that we ought to live? And I know some of you are thinking right now, I'm single. There's not a guy on the horizon. There's no girl within miles of me. This message doesn't apply, so I'm going to check out. I want you to remember, and I've been saying it all throughout this series. This series is for every age and every stage. And I want you to take these truths, and I don't care if you're 13, 12, 5, I don't care what your age, 55, 65, this message will help you, will be a blessing to you. And so we give you notes, we give you pens that you take home and you steal and you don't turn them in. And so you use those pens today, use those notes today, and take some notes and think that, hey, I want to leave a legacy. I don't want to be a liability. Because there's so many people today that they look back at their family and they're like, I don't have anything in my family to be proud of. I got alcoholics, I got drunks, I got uh, a separation, I've got divorce, I've got all kinds of uh, stuff in my past. But for you, it can be different. For you, you can say, you know what, I am going to start a new generation. Hey, our family tree is going to take a new branch this morning, all right? But you say, how do we do that? First of all, it starts by teaching what is true. By teaching what is true. We live in a world that teaches there are no absolutes and that everything is relative. That what's true for you may not be true for me. And so you and I, we come into society and a culture that says, well, if everything's relative, then it doesn't really matter what you believe. The fact is that we do have truth. We do have absolute truth found in the word of God. What happens is that we as parents or we as mentors, we don't take the time to teach what is true. Instead, we just teach what is popular. Or instead, we just teach what is culturally acceptable. But we need to get back to teaching what is true. You see, too many parents are leaving the most important decisions up to the child's life, up to them. 
and they're abdicating their responsibility. You say, what do you mean? I understand the intention, but I heard this so many times. I youth pastored for several years before we started the church. And parents would come up to me, and they would say, you know what? I'm just going to let my children figure out what they want to do as far as it comes to religion and morality and politics and all those things. I'm just going to kind of let them figure it out. I said, those are major, life-changing, altering decisions, and you're going to let them decide? And this is my argument. This is what I tell to them. I would say, oh, okay. Well, guess what? Tomorrow, I'm going to Disneyland. They would say, well, good for you. What? Why does that have to do anything with me? Yeah, I got a five-year-old little girl. Her name is Megan. And, we're, and I got tickets. We're all going to Disneyland. Jane and I, we're going to drive, and Megan has to find her own way. You say, you're a jacked-up parent. Yeah, that'd be messed up. Because Megan's the type of girl she would try. She'd get along a little bike with little streamers, and she would pedal. I guarantee you, with a Disneyland ticket in her hand, and with the ears on her head, she would pedal. She wouldn't have a clue where she was going. She wouldn't know how long it would take her to get there. She would have her little purse. She'd have her little coins from her piggy bank, and Megan would start going. And guess what? She would get hurt. She would get lost. She would get scarred, bumped, bruises, any number of terrible things that could happen. Not to mention, Jane and I would be arrested, our kids would be taken from us, the ministry gone, we'd have a prison ministry after this, and it'd all be for nothing. Why? Because I said, you know what, Megan, I'm going to leave the big decisions up to you. Can I tell you what? Heaven is such a big decision. Hell is such a big decision. These are such big decisions. I would never just leave them up to my child to figure them out. Don't leave them up for your child to figure out. Don't leave it up to MTV to teach them. Don't leave it up to even some public school. You're abdicating your role as a parent. Here's what Deuteronomy chapter number 6 says. It says, and I'm going to have to read it for you because it's so powerful. This is what God gave to the children of Israel to say, hey, here's how you teach them what is true. And I want to put the onus on you, parents. I, you came to church today, and I hope you understood that when you came to church, it's buckle your seatbelt, it's fasten in, because we have a parenting crisis today where parents are letting PS4 and they're letting computer and internet and Call of Duty raise their children as they just think, I'll just step back and hope they turn out right. Are you kidding me? No, we need to get back in the fight, get back engaged. You say, well, you don't know my teenager. I don't, but I'm going to encourage you, and I'm going to be your coach, and I'm going to say you can do it. They want you back in their life. They want your input. They may snub you. They may slam the door. They may curse you and call you terrible things, but it's your job as a parent to stand up and say, you know what? I will not let you make the mistakes that I made. I will not let you go down that path. I'm, it is my job and my calling to teach you, and you can hate me. You can vilify me, but before God, I will do what I'm supposed to do, and you're going to teach them. Here's what Deuteronomy says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. That is a great theological statement. Our God is one Lord. He starts off with this great truth. If you are not teaching your children that, start there, that we serve an awesome God, one creator God. There is one God. We don't serve multiple gods. There is one. You see, here's the reality. You can be a Mormon and never meet Joseph Smith. You can be a Buddhist and never meet Buddha. You can be a Muslim and never know Muhammad, but you cannot be a Christian and not know Jesus. Okay? You can't do it. You can't 
do it? You have to know Jesus. And we are here to teach people that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way. And so we start with these great theological truths and that Jesus is for you. God is for you. You say, but I see all the war. I see all the pain. And I see little kids that are dying. I see them abused and raped and all this suffering. And come back next week because we're going to kick off a series that we're going to deal with a lot of this stuff. But you need to understand, How we know God is for us is that God sent his perfect, sinless son to die on a cross, to suffer like a human for our sins. And that's what we look to as God being invested and caring in our world, okay? So we are to teach them what is true. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Verse number five in that passage is for parents. It's parents, it's mom and dad, it's you and I. It's saying, hey, you love them. Get the vertical right and then the horizontal. And notice what it says in verse number six. And these words have I commanded thee this day that shall be in thy heart. See, what happens is you've passed on your love for sports, but you haven't passed on your love for God. You passed on your love for video games and you passed on your love for your boat. You passed on your love for cars, but where's your love for God? And here's the reality why you haven't passed it on. You cannot teach what you do not know. You cannot lead where you haven't been and you cannot give what you do not have. So if you're not passing these things down, let's get real, let's get brutal and let's say, God, is there a relationship here? Have I neglected you? We've got to get real honest with ourselves because the command is to pass these things down. The command is to teach truth because nobody else will. They'll teach them all their things, but they won't teach them the truth. And here's what the scripture says. It says, thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy child. Thou shalt talk of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, and when you're lying down, and when you rise up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. You say, when should I? I teach my children all the time. You see, I want to give you two things. There is formal teaching, which is modeling and mentoring. There's that formal teaching. You're constantly. There needs to be those times, parents, where you teach them. Don't just rely on the pastor, the youth pastor, the Christian school teacher, the private school, the public school. Don't just abdicate your role. You need to have formal time where you are formally teaching your children. We have lost that these day and age, where we have neglected our role as parents to say, you know what? I'm not going to leave a liability. I'm going to leave a legacy. Where's the formal teaching and training? For some of you, this may be brand new. You may never have heard this. You may never have heard that it is your responsibility, not the pastors to teach your children. It is your responsibility, not the rich kids leaders. It is yours. We are the coaches. We are the accessory. We are the help, but you are the one that needs to go do it. I go to CrossFit. I enjoy CrossFit. I haven't talked about it for two weeks. That's pretty good for me. And when I go there, I enjoy being there, but it's an hour of my day, an hour. But guess what? If I eat coffee and donuts and, 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 and all this junk food all day long, that hour does me no good, okay? My coach will tell me to help me, but guess what? He can't make me when I'm at my house, open up the refrigerator and choose the celery instead of the cake. I've got to make that decision. You've got to say, you know what? I'm going to choose what our family's going to do. We're not going to watch certain programs. We're not going to go to certain places. We're going to do this. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So there's got to be formal teaching. You see, then there's got to be informal teaching. Did you see in those where he said, hey, when you're passing by, when you're lying down, when you're awake, you know what happens? You get in a car ride, and there are these little white things that go in your child's ear. 
I don't know if your child, if you've seen them, they just magically appear in their ears. I mean, it's amazing. You get in the car, and all of a sudden, these things, like, levitate out of their pockets, and they just there. And you look over, and they're like, there goes the opportunity to talk with them. Make a rule. Those aren't allowed in your car. I'm serious. If you would do that, you would say the communication. You say, well, our teenagers, my kids, just, we just don't talk. We just don't have that relationship. We, we kind of know each other. We just kind of give people the look, like, to my kid. That's, that's what we do. No, no, no. You're missing a moment to talk to them. You're missing a moment to train them. And you take those moments and say, hey, this is a great opportunity. We've got a 45-minute ride. We're stuck in traffic to your school. How are you doing this morning? Hey, what's going on at school? What are some struggles you're having? You know how I can tell some of you aren't talking to your kids? Because your kids will text me. And I get before God, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Some of your kids are asking me some tough questions. And I love it that they'll come to me. But what scares me is that I don't think they go to you. I really don't. And you say, well, isn't that what you get paid for? Isn't that what you make those big bucks for? Come on, that's your job. You're abdicating your role. I get 45 minutes a week with you guys. You have 168. Who do you think is going to have more influence or who should have more influence? Let's put the onus back on us. Let's not just abdicate a role. Let's say, you know, I'm going to step into my child's life. You love your child more than anybody else. You would take a bullet for your child, and your child needs to know that you would take a bullet for him. Your child needs to know that you would give up a lung for him. Your child needs to know that you would do anything for him. And if they don't, you're not stewarding their significance. You're saying, hey, take some money, play some video games, get out of my face, watch PBS, take this app, take this iPad. Just leave me alone. Just let's, can we afford a nanny or something? That's the that's society we live in. That's the culture we live in. Instead of saying, wait a minute, I want to step up, and I've got a moment here. Around the dinner table, are you allowing phones and iPads? Or are you going to say, you know what, that's done. Hey, put it down, turn it off, put it away. Hey, at night, when your kid, your, your, your elementary age, your high school student, when they go to bed, do you even let them take the phone in the room, the laptop in the room? I wouldn't. I would say, no, no, you can charge your phones in here. You're not sleeping right. It's affecting your grades. You're spending way too much time up on your computer, way too much time for video games. So parents, just put it in your room. You say, my kids, they'll get mad. They'll get frustrated. Of course they're going to get mad. But you've got to have those formal and informal moments of teaching. You just got to say, no, no. Because here's what it does. It shows your children, I care so much about you. I care so much about your grades. I care so much about your well-being. You need rest. You need to uh, be in shape. You need to do these things. So there needs to be this informal teaching. Stop babysitting their behavior and start stewarding their significance. The Bible says this about in Psalms. It says, children are an heritage of the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is his reward. Those children are reward. So when society says, hey, you know what? They're not really a human being. They don't really have conscience. We could just do whatever with them. You need to understand that God says those are reward, okay? There's precious life. If this mic's getting too much, I'll switch, okay? You just let me know. And he says, as arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath this quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gates. The gates was a place of position. It was a place of strategic power, a place of strategic influence. And the Bible is saying, hey, prepare your children for those moments, those key moments in their life. But I'm afraid most of the time we haven't prepared our children very well. Unless they can find a job with Nintendo or Sony to play video games, we've done a very poor job at preparing our children. Because guess what? You're not going to be in their future. So you've got to take the things that you've learned. Say, I've got to prepare you. It's my job. But what happens is I fear that a lot of parents, we parent scared. 
You say, what do you mean? I, I want them to keep them as my friend, and I don't want to lose a relationship, and, and, and I'm not sure how to handle this. I'm not sure what the future. See, we need a parent with a sense of destiny. Remember when we started off this series, we said, hey, there's a target, and it's not happiness. It's not healthiness. It's holiness. You see, what happens when you're parenting scared, you don't know what to aim at. You don't know what's going to work and what's not going to work. And you're choosing what psychologists will say, oh, it's happy, and now it's healthy. But we need to go back to what the Bible says. No, no, it's holiness. It's this wholeness. It's this completeness. It's this oneness with Christ. That is the goal. And when you are parenting by that standard, you can have confidence even in the midst of great difficulty. In the, even in the midst of their rebellion, they're acting out, they're getting frustrated and saying terrible things about you. You can continue piloting your course and keep going strong. You see, we need to give them enough rope, but not enough to hang themselves. You say, what do you mean? What I'm saying is, your children need to know they have some freedom. You need to give them enough rope so they have a little freedom to make some decisions. You say, well, if I do that, they're going to make some dumb decisions. Of course they will. But your children need to learn to make decisions. And as they make wise decisions, guess what you do, parent? You give them more rope. And as they make foolish decisions, you say, I'm pulling back the rope. And when they crash the car, you take the rope. Okay? You see how this works? You say, no, 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 I'm I'm taking this back. You've proven you can't do this. And when you're paying for college and they're failing all their classes, you say, okay, I'm pulling the funding. You say, oh, we we couldn't do it. No, no, yes, you can. Because either they're going to learn it now or they're going to have a family with children and they're going to say, oh, it's too hard, hard. I'm not going to work. I'm not going to raise the kids. You need to train them, and if you teach them now, hey, I'm going to give you a little bit of rope. And as you earn it, hey, you said you'd be back by 11 o'clock. It's 11.15. Guess what? You can't go out next Friday night. Dad, Mom, it was 15 minutes. It was 15 minutes. You broke my trust. Because now, guess what problem you have? They don't come back at 11.15. They don't come back at 11.30. They come back at 1, 2 a.m. They wake you up. You stay up all night. You worry about them. You're not sure if you're going to get a knock on the door from a police officer, highway patrolman. You're scared to death. You should not live like that, Mom and Dad. You said, no, no, I'm pulling back the rope. I said 11 o'clock, and get this. When I was growing up at 17, I had my dad come and pick us up at 10 o'clock, furious that we were out till 10 o'clock. Furious. He said, it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night. What are you doing out so late? Dad, it's 10 o'clock. I know times have changed. I went to Walmart and Target the other day at 10 o'clock, and I'm seeing little kids just running around. I'm thinking, what's going on? We just, just let people out during the day. You see, you need to understand that you give your parents some rope, you give your children rope, and you help them make decisions. When they don't make wise decisions, pull it back. And parents, don't worry about what your coworker says about what you should do. They don't know your kids. It's your job to steward their influence because you know their abilities, you know their gifts, you know what God has called them to. So it is your job to say, I'm going to give them enough rope, I'm going to give them enough leeway, and you can trust them. And some other parents may say, I don't know why you bought them that car. It doesn't matter. You're the parent. You say, I'm going to give them some rope. You say, well, I gave them a credit card. And some other parents say, I don't know why you gave them a credit card. My wife had a credit card since she was 14. She's the reason we were able to buy a house. It wasn't because of me. She took that rope and said, I'll steward it well. And because of that, and I kid you not, it was the most embarrassing moment of our marriage. I applied for a credit card, got denied. She applied right after me, and she got accepted. And they said, hey, how much do you want? What what limit do you want? I said, what do you mean, what limit? It's not $500. They're like, yeah, how much do you want? They were willing to give her whatever she wanted. Why? Because she had stewarded a rope well. You see, what happens nowadays, you're not letting your children steward anything. You're not letting them have a job. You're not letting them cross the street. There needs to be a time where they make some mistakes. Because guess what? When they're young, 
They're not making life-altering mistakes, are they? They're not. They're not buying a house. They're not uh, getting a full-time career. They're not moving in with anybody. It's a great time for them to make some mistakes when they're young. But what happens is some of us, we want to be the helicopter parent, and we want our kids to walk around with, like, bumper pads and a helmet and mouth guard, and, and we want to make sure the insurance has been doubled, and, and we want to make sure they're, they're, even though they're 10, they still got training wheels on because their bike, we want to make sure they don't get hurt. Parents, we're not preparing them well. And we need to steward that. It comes in formal moments and informal moments. Not only are we stewarding well, but then notice we're supposed to train, teach them the truth, but then we are supposed to train them for tomorrow. Train them for tomorrow. Are we training our kids for tomorrow? Guess what? There's going to come a day where you're not going to be around. And I hate to say it, and I wish you were always going to be there, and guess what? You wish you were always going to be there. But you have to prepare them for a generation, for a day and age that you are not ready for, you may not know of. And it is our responsibility to say, hey, I need to prepare these children. It is given to me by God to train them. Here, Abraham, he took Isaac with him. He is training him that we worship Jehovah God. This is how we worship him. And when we worship God, we bring something. We don't just come and we don't just sit in the church and just say, all right, God, bless me if you can. God, give me something if you dare. No, we come and say, God, I'm ready for something. I'm here to bring something. I'm here to engage in worship. You see, we, in this passage, we also see a picture of what Jesus would do in the future. You say, what do you mean? The Bible says they went to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is exactly where the city of Jerusalem sits. And they were offering a sacrifice. Abraham is a picture of God in this passage. Isaac is a picture of Jesus, the only son. Isaac, at this point of his life, he, he was unmarried. There's several pictures where he identifies as a picture of Christ. And he's going to be offered up as a, as a sacrifice. I want to follow that line of thinking. I want you to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he took all the sins of the world and the punishment for the world, and it was placed upon him. Okay? Now, when it comes to punishment, Jesus took all the punishment. He took all your punishment, and guess what? He took all your children's punishment. Where I'm going with is this. Discipline is key for your children. And where I'm going to go with this, some of you are going to feel really uncomfortable with, and you may think that I don't agree with that. I want you to give me a hearing this morning. For the next five, ten minutes, whether you agree or disagree, I want you to give me a hearing about disciplining your child. You, after ten minutes, you can agree, you can disagree, that's totally fine. Let me lay out a case for you of proper discipline in the family. Because I see so many families where there's zero discipline going on. And you see them too. You're in Walmart, you're in Target, you're in a restaurant, and you see kids, and they're 10, 11. And what's even worse, you see them when they're 24 and 25 and 30, and they're in your office, your coworkers, and you're just thinking, what happened? And you kind of know what happened. There was no discipline. And so we need to understand something about discipline, though. Okay? Discipline is not punishment. You say, yeah, it is. No, it's not. Because the Bible says that Jesus took all the sins and punishment upon him. So he paid for their, dis- their punishment, didn't he? Jesus took your child's punishment. They wrecked the car. They stayed out late. Whatever they did, whatever they did to break your rules, guess what? They didn't do it against you. You need to understand, as a parent... They did it against God, okay? Why is this so important? Because many times you get very angry and upset when your children disobey. And the reality is, you don't need to get upset. They didn't do it against you. They did it against God. And you need to teach them that when they do wrong, they get right with God. Because one day you're not going to be there, and they're going to be an adult, and they may be tempted to cheat on their wife. They're going to be tempted to steal at work, and they need to understand, before God, I'm doing wrong. Are you tracking with me? 
We track one thing. Isn't that important that our children realize one day, I don't want to cheat on my wife. I don't want to have an affair on my spouse because I'd be sinning against God. Because guess what? You're, they're not going to be thinking about you when they're thinking about cheating on their wife or stealing from the company. They're not thinking about mom and dad. They need to have a healthy fear of God. That, Wait a minute, I, I stand before God, a God that watches, God that sees. And so I need to make sure this is something that does not happen. So we are, need to teach our children that, hey, you, you didn't hurt me. You hurt God. God paid for that punishment. God took it. So discipline is, punishment is about past misdeeds. Discipline is to correct future behavior. Do you see where I'm going with this? Punishment is for past misdeeds. God took that. Discipline is to correct future behavior. Hey, I go to the gym and I work out and the church says, no, 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 Makai, you're going to throw your back out if you do it like that. Don't just reach down and pull up 375 pounds and just wrench your back like that. Oh, no, you will snap your back like a toothpick. Don't ever do that again. No, 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 no. Discipline. Discipline. Now do it again, but do it right. Oh, no, no, you still didn't do it. Do it again and do it right. See, you see where discipline comes into effect? But a lot of times you and I, we think discipline is dirty. A lot of parents think discipline is dirty. And you are looking at discipline the wrong way. And what we need to see is when we discipline, it's not getting right with you, but them getting right with God. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart. The word train in the Hebrew is the word kaunak, which means to discipline. Discipline is something you do for your kids, not to your kids. Your kids may yell and scream and say, why are you disciplining me? Why are you doing this to me? You're such a mean dad, terrible dad, a bad mom, awful mom. And Austin likes to do this one. We're not friends anymore. That's what Austin does, okay? And I'm saying that's fine. I don't need to be your friend. We'll be friends when you're 25. But right now, I don't need a three-year-old best friend. It's okay. I will survive somehow. But you need to understand, a lot of parents, that will break them down right there. If their child says, you're not my friend, because we have codependency issues. And we turn our, our codependency on our child, and we look to our child to fulfill some part of us that's missing. A lot of parents do. It's huge. And when you hear those words that they don't want to be your friend anymore, you're thinking, this is the worst thing ever. And instead of understanding, there needs to be a proper discipline. So discipline is not dirty when you see it in proper light. Punishment is for past misdeeds. Discipline is correct future acts. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 24, he that spares the rod hates his son. You say, what do you mean, spares the rod? I've never, what are you talking about? I'm talking about capital punishment in the sense of spanking. What happens is we live in a culture that says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't spank a child. You may hurt their psyche. You may hurt their emotions. I'm going to go through what non-Christian psychiatrists say about this topic. I'm going to bring it up to you. I'm going to bring up an article where the LA Times talks about it, where in San Francisco, they had a debate about it, and guess what they're finding out? That spanking has no emotional trauma when done correctly. Now, when you spank, you're not there to bruise. You're not there to hurt. You are there to sting. Guess what? If it didn't hurt, it didn't work, okay? The day where my mom had to stop spanking me, I remember very clearly we were at my grandma's house. I was probably 14, I know. That's kind of old, right? I was 14. She was trying to spank me, and I just stood up, and I just kind of looked at her, and I was like, I'm trying not to laugh. I'm trying to be respectful, but either you're going to have to get dad, you're going to have to take some money. This just isn't going to work anymore. And from that day on, spankings were done for me. Why? Because it, there, there was, it didn't hurt, so it wasn't working. There needs to be that. Also, if they disobey, take it away. 
Too many times we just kind of, uh, oh, you broke the rule. That's fine. Take the car, take the phone, take the video games, whatever. And we don't, no, 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 they disobey. And the Bible also goes on and says, the rod of reproof gives wisdom, but a child left to himself brings his mother to shame. Withhold not correction from a child. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it from him. So we need to understand that, hey, there is this discipline that is necessary. It's not dirty. And now you're not there to abuse. You are there to help and correct behavior. But here's what happens. Many parents, they think, oh, no, no, I, I, I can't do that. But here's what one psychologist said. And he came up with four quadrants when it came to parents. He said there is the permissive parents, which a permissive parent, and as we go through this, I don't want you to like poke your spouse or anything, but I just want you to think in your mind which one you are. A permissive parent is high in love, but low in discipline. High in love, but low in discipline. You're the one, and guess what? I'm the one that when they're at the store and they say, I want the candy, I want the toy, I'm the one that usually says yes. But when it's, they're in trouble, it's typically really hard, and Jane knows this about me. And she knows it's very difficult. But here's the problem, what psychologists say. It says that you, a parent that raises children, produces children that have low self-image and inferiority issues. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought this is what I call the friend parent. They're just the best friend. But the reality is you're going to end up with a child who has inferiority issues and self-image issues. Why? Because you didn't set up any proper boundaries, so they never figured out who they were because they could do whatever. But the problem was they got into a job or they got into a relationship where they couldn't be whatever and do whatever. And all of a sudden, people didn't like them, didn't like being around them. And they're like having identity issues. Why? Because you wouldn't ever put up a boundary. You wouldn't ever say, hey, no, 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 you can't cross this line. Hey, this is what's proper. This is what's good. This is what's healthy. So there's the permissive parent. And the earmark of this parent is that they are afraid of messing up. They're afraid of hurting their child's cycle. Then there's the neglectful parent. This is low in love, low in discipline. This is where we get children that are estranged, that they grow up without parents. They don't like their parents. They have major mental health issues. They are uh, damaged emotionally, oftentimes physically. And I call these parents a forsaking parent. Just a parent who neglects them. A parent wants nothing to do with their child. We see that a lot. But then there's also the authoritarian parent. This is low in love and, or, uh, uh, low in love and high in discipline. Oftentimes we see sometimes when somebody comes from a military background, they're low in love but high in discipline. And we think we're really helping. It seems really good. But children are in that relationship are provoked to rebel. They're just provoked to rebel. They have lots of security, though, but you're the type that you're willing to throw down over anything. I'm learning as a young parent, I don't need to get throw down about everything. I don't need to have World War III over everything my children do wrong. So Jane and I, we established three things. The three things that we said, hey, you break these three, it's on like Donkey Kong. I mean, these are the three, you break this. If you're disrespectful to your mom or to somebody else, no, we don't, we don't put up with that. If you're dishonest, no. And then the last one, we said, hey, if you do this, there's just, there's just disobedience. Those are the three. And we said, those three, you know what's going to happen. Every time, I don't care where we are, we're going to deal with those three. Now, for you, you pick a different three. But parents, you will wear yourself out thinking you've got to fight every issue. You don't. 
pick the important ones and say, this is what our family will do. This is where we are and communicate that to them. But then they say, the psychologists say the healthiest parents are the authoritative parents. You say, what do you mean? Those are high in love and high in discipline. These children have high self-esteem and high coping skills and come out well-balanced children. So they're high in love and high in discipline. Parents, that's the goal. Now, you may not have been that parent. I'm not. That's the goal. But that's what we're shooting for because we want healthy self-image. We want great balance in our life. But how do we discipline? Never discipline out of anger. Have you ever said this to your children? Just go to your room. Don't raise your hand. Don't nod. But I have. The problem is when you're angry, it's not time to send your children to the room. It's time for you and I to go to the room. Never discipline out of anger. Because why? You're disciplining. You're thinking the problem is with you and your child. It's not. The problem is between them and God. And so when they do something, they lie, they steal, they do something wrong. That's when you sit down with your child and say, oh, no. And the younger you start this with, they're going to say, what do you mean, oh, no? Well, you hit that kid in class. You're a bully. I'm a what? You're a bully. Here's what the Bible says. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, no. This is not good. And all of a sudden, they thought you're going to come off really mad, and you're going to come off, I mean, just just ready to go ballistic on them. And they see what's happening to you, and they get really worried as a child. And when you don't fly off the handle, and you handle it calmly and collectively, that's when children get worried. Because when you're emotional, they know that, okay, I can, they're so emotional, you're not thinking logically. Because when you're angry, guess what? The logical part of your brain in the back that reasons and thinking and logical, anger shuts that off. Shuts it right down. So you can't make good decisions. You're not disciplining properly. So do not ever discipline out of anger. Also, give clear warnings. You see what I mean? Do your children know what's right and wrong? Do they know that, guess what? No drugs are allowed in the house. You say, I just assume. Don't assume. Do they know no alcohol in the house? Oh, I just assume. Don't assume. Do they know sleepovers with their girlfriend inside their bedroom is not a good thing? I just assume. Don't assume. I know parents today that they're well-meaning parents, and they're like, well, teenagers today are just going to get along with their boyfriend and girlfriend. Might as well have them do it at home. Are you kidding me? What? Oh, no. And I hear the old argument. I'm going to go on a little tangent. Well, some people are like, well, I just, you know, uh, I like to test drive a car before I buy. Really? I don't know about you, but when it comes to buying a car, I typically don't like to buy one with also with 200,000 miles on it either. Just saying. I like it new, not used. Parents, we need to put down the law and put down the discipline. You say, what are you talking about? This is, this is, whoa, and I can feel the tension right now. I don't know if you see it. I feel it. You guys are, guess what? Stop for a minute. We're going to take a big eraser over your past. You say, what do you mean a big eraser over my past? You and I are always going to make parenting mistakes. And some of us are going to be really upset about them. But here's a big eraser. And it erases those, okay? They're gone. This message is hard. I know it is. I know it is. But I want you to understand, God says, hey, I took your punishment. You're not a perfect parent. I'm not a perfect parent. So let's stop right now. Let's not, let's not, let's not worry. Let's not, let's not say, oh, I failed and I can't do it and I quit church. Just give up. No, don't do that. Today is different. 
And he said, well, I got teenagers. It's so hard. It is. You ask my parents. I was the hardest one for them to raise. And one time I got 100 spankings in one time. One sitting, 100. You say, what was it? My mom had made rice, and I did not like rice. God has a sense of humor. I married a Filipino, and we eat a lot of rice. So it's just the irony of it. My mom made rice. She put it on my plate, and I stood up. I was four years old. I took that plate of rice, and I went like this. I looked her straight in the eyes, and I went, I just dumped it as I was glaring at her. She said, okay. She says, you're getting 100 spankings. And I started to count that. (laughs) Oh, man, you got to be kidding me. And, man, it was on. So I need you to understand, parents, you may not be the perfect parent, but God says, don't worry. You're doing the best you can. There's a giant eraser. Restart. Just tell your children right now. You say, they're 17, they're 18, they're 22. Then you say, hey, guess what? We love you. I am so for you. I want to have a great relationship with you. But guess what? From my point of view, we're going to have a great relationship. But for us to do that, you have to abide by these rules. And guess what? Any job they work for is going to have ground rules. Any place they go is going to have ground rules. Any relationship they're in, there's going to be ground rules if they're going to have a good relationship. So dad and mom, don't be scared to set up some ground rules. Hey, if you have somebody living with you, you're renting out a room, set up some ground rules. It's your house. It's your place. You can set the ground rules. Don't give into a culture and society that says, oh, guess what? You're just a victim. People are just going to do what they do. No. You say, no, that's not going to fly around here. And I want to let you know, I'm going to be there to encourage you. I want to be there to help you. And if you make some mistakes, guess what? We're all going to. We're not perfect. So take that erasure, open up the Bible, and just God says, hey, look, it's okay. I still love you. I love your children. They're still there. We're going to make some good decisions. We're going to make some not so good decisions. But when it comes to discipline, don't discipline out of anger. You don't have to. They did it before God, not to you. Also, give clear warnings. Establish responsibility, communicate grief, have sincere repentance. I mean, if they see that you're broken over what they did, not just angry, it'll change them. The first time you see your parents cry, maybe some of you remember it growing up. When your parents were broken over what you did, it broke you. It broke you. So if they see that you're affected by it, it will. Now, when it comes to repentance, don't ask them why they did what they did wrong. I've done this. Megan, why did you do that? Well, I'm fallen and sinful man, and I'm wicked, and I have a depraved heart, and list all these other theological terms. No. She wanted the candy at the store, so she took it, all right? Instead of asking why did they do it, you need to flip the question, and you need to ask them, what did they do wrong? Well, well, no, no, no. You see, that, that person, they made me mad. No, 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 no. Megan, what did you do wrong? Well, Austin took this from me. No, no, Megan, what did you do wrong? I hit Austin. And what else did you? I lied to mom about it. Your children need to accept responsibility for what they did. You need to teach your children to be ready and responsible. So don't ask them why they did it. They're never going to tell you. Why do you do the things wrong that you do? Come on. Let's not be so hard on our kids. A police officer pull you over. Why did you do that? I don't know. I don't know. No, we're not going to give him a reason. Well, officer, I've just today just had that rough day. I just felt a need for speed. You ever get that? Well, how, how fast does your car go? Man, I just had a lead foot today, and I saw you back there, and I just said you look bored eating that donut and drinking that coffee. So I just thought, you know what? I would just mm, punch it. Matter of fact, I was even talking on my cell phone just for good measure. No Bluetooth. None whatsoever. Oh, man, I was changing lanes without turning on the turn signal. 
oh, man, and I think I got a brake light out too. Just, just you know, want to make your day. No. All right, we got to move on. There's so much ground we got to cover. Avoid embarrassment. So when you're punishing the kid, don't use the hand that loves. You'll have to ask. I, I know in some cultures, children have been brought up in cultures where it's very normal for a parent to take a hand and slap them in the face. If you've done that, I'm going to say this as nice as I can. You probably need some counseling. If this has become a habitual thing for you to use your hand to punish, you probably need some counseling. You say, what? That's serious? It's, it's a very serious thing. When it comes to discipline, God gave a proper posterior area with plenty of cushioning, no vital organs that can really handle it. The face is, no. That, that, you're causing shame. You're causing all kinds of issues. And so a, a, a little wooden spoon will do the trick. And it's not about bringing your arm way back. It's just a good little flick, kind of that get the wind just kind of whistling there. And just a little sting, a little pinch. You don't have to wail on your children. This isn't something where all of a sudden the cat of nine tails is coming out of the closet. And you're thinking, well, the Bible says to suffer like Jesus, and you're about to suffer like Jesus. No, you kidding me? Wow, you've got, wow, there's other churches for you. But then there needs to know that there's unconditional love. You say, why do we discipline? Because it's a deterrent to destruction. It's a deterrent in their life. Their need, the child needs to know there are certain places I can't go. Your children are bent on destruction. Megan and Austin love going out in the street. What's up? We have sidewalks and we have a grassy area, but they love the street. They're bent on self-destruction. Austin is bent on touching the stove. Megan is bent on putting Austin inside the dryer. Uh, There's just things that these children are just bent on doing. They're bent on climbing on countertops and grabbing scissors. They're just bent on self-destruction. And so it's you that put up discipline to say, you know what? This is to deter destruction. And you're hoping that I'm going to teach them that, guess what? I want to teach you some good principles. I want to teach you some good things that will deter you. Because guess what? I don't want you to become an alcoholic. I don't want you to become a drug addict. I don't want you to become a Barry Madoff. There are things I don't want you to become because I don't want to leave a liability. I want to leave a legacy. And guess what? Things can start over with you. Things can start anew. You see, our role is to make sure our children are ready and responsible. Good discipline is done through consistent action and clear instruction in an atmosphere of love. Good discipline is done through a consistent action and clear instruction and atmosphere of love. Short-term pain is always worth long-term gain. You're choosing short-term gain and long-term pain if you do no discipline. You say, I don't don't like to punish my kids. Nobody does. Nobody does. But will you choose short-term pain for long-term gain? Or are you the exact opposite? No, I just want short-term gain and long-term pain. So what you have is an estranged kid. Yeah, you gave them everything. Guess what? Look how they treat you now. No. So it's time to say, no, I'm going to reverse it. But we're talking about transferring. Thirdly, we're going to wrap this up right here. We're, we're going over time. We need to transfer their trust. What's interesting in this passage, verse number nine, you see that Isaac lays down on the altar. I need you to understand something. Isaac is not a nine-year-old little boy. I don't know if you grew up in Sunday school. They showed little boy Isaac. That's not history. Isaac was a full-grown man. And the Bible says that Isaac let Abraham tie him up and laid him there. You see, the goal for you as parents, and too often I hear this, parents say, well, I just want to make sure they're independent. I just want to make sure they can take care of themselves. They need to be independent. No, no, no. They need to be not independent, but dependent. No longer on you, but now on God. There needs to be a transfer of dependence. But what happens is, parents, we don't ever transfer that. 
You see, uh, we may kind of laugh at what other cultures do, but they have a ceremony, especially for men, where they say you are now a man, and there needs to be that transfer. For the Hebrews, it's the bar mitzvah. In other African tribes, they would have certain cultural ceremonies that they would do. It'd be a dance or it'd be a hunt, and they would say, you're no longer a boy. You are now a, a man, and they would pass on that mantle, and they would say, hey, there's this transfer. We in our Christian circles, we don't do that anymore. We don't say, hey, you're at the age where you now need to trust God. I can tell you times as I paid my own way through college and I was having to work two jobs, work all night, and I'd call my parents and say, you know what, I'm short on money. My parents would say, you know what, we want to help you, but you're going to have to trust God in this. You've stepped out on your own. It's time for you to see how God will provide for you. And it was miraculous. I, I kid you not. The things that would happen, I get phone calls where somebody would say, hey, they just put, somebody, stranger put $1,000 on your school bill. Wow. Just random. God just took care of in miraculous ways. Now, sometimes that, that miracle was a second job that you had to work, okay? I know we all just want money to pop out of thin air, but sometimes God just says, hey, you know what? Your miracle is a second job, or your miracle is an extra uh, burden that may be placed there. So you need to see there's this transfer of trust, and we need to get our children because one day we're not going to be there, and they need to be trust and rely on God. But I need you to understand, faith doesn't rely on an explanation. It relies on a promise. In chapter 25, Abraham dies. Chapter 26, we pick up a new story. Now, Isaac is the patriarch of the family. It is up to Isaac to continue the covenant, the promise that God has given him. And Isaac is confronted with a famine. When we first met Abraham, guess what? A famine came into the land. And so at this same thing, in Genesis chapter 26, verse number 1, and there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Bible says that God came to him and said, hey, there's a famine, but don't go to Egypt. Your dad went to Egypt. You stay right here. Sometimes God will ask you to stay right in the famine, right where it's difficult, right where it's hard. And here's Isaac's opportunity. Is he going to trust God or not? And the Bible says that Isaac stayed. He stayed. You see, you need to understand how important it is to stay where God puts us. And Isaac stayed there. What often happens, though, is we don't do that transfer of trust. See, he knew he could trust God. Why? God had provided. Uh, my wife and I, we've been on a diet for the last nine weeks, special diet. She's uh, losing weight. I'm trying to mass and gain weight, nine and a half weeks. And I keep talking to the coach. And I keep telling him, hey, I'm not, I'm not seeing some of the results that I want. And he keeps telling me, you know, it's very difficult. It's not easy. But he would say one word over and over. Trust the process. Trust the process. You right now as a parent, you may say, my kids are young. I don't, I don't know. Am I doing this right? I need you to understand you need to trust the process this morning. You need to look at the word of God and say, hey, am I following what God has laid out? And trust that process that what God has led you, he will fulfill it. You see, you can't expect your children to rise to the occasion if you weren't faithful to the process. You be faithful to the process. God will take care of your kids. The Bible says train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it, okay? So you be faithful to the process. Be diligent to the role that God has given you. Isaac came to this country in this this land of Gerar, and there's a famine. And so the Bible says he goes and he digs the well that his father had dug. But then the, uh, the people of the land came and they kept stopping up the well. What's interesting about that is the fact that he went to the well his father dug, which had been filled in, and he redug it. I need you to understand, you want your kids when you're gone off the scene to come back to some of the things that you valued. You valued God. You valued marriage. You valued church. You want your children to come back to those same values. 
Here is Isaac coming back to the same well. And he's saying, you know what? There was water here. There was life in this well. And he came back to it. You need to train your children and train them right. And they may go off. They might. And you need to trust the process and say, God, I'm going to be as faithful as I can be. And God, I'm going to trust you to bring my children back. Isaac was faithful and he was digging an old well. Also, Isaac dug down, but he still dug. Isaac was down, but he still dug. You see what I mean? They kept filling in these uh, 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 wells. Every time Isaac digs three wells and he kept filling them in. And I'm rushing through the passage because we've got to go. But you need to understand that he kept digging. He kept digging. Why? Because he knew that there was some life there. He knew he had to keep going. And as a parent, I don't want you to give up right now. I don't want you just to quit as a mom and dad. I want you to steward your child's influence. I want you to say, you know what? This may not be the easiest thing, but we're going to keep going. Also, Isaac was blessed even though others were experiencing burdens. Some of you are looking at, man, it's really hard here. Silicon Valley is expensive. Schools aren't all that great. Maybe it's just time to pack up and leave, to go elsewhere. Here is Isaac. Everybody else is starving. Everybody else is suffering. How come Isaac's being blessed? The Bible says that God blessed him with cattle. God blessed him with all all kinds of resources. See, you can thrive even when others are just trying to survive. If you would say, God, I'm going to be faithful to what you've called me to. So Isaac said, I'm going to be faithful to the promise, even though it's difficult. You see, the same area where everybody else was struggling, Isaac was being strengthened. Don't make excuses why God can't use you or bless you in the situation that you're in. You see, God can use you there. God can use you in a family where it seems difficult. So are you leaving a legacy or a liability? Are you worried about, more about the inheritance or their heritage? Last night, um, and we'll put the picture up there. I'm sorry, it's a bad picture. This is of me and my grandma. Her name is Oma. Can you put it up there? It's that really distorted picture. I'm sorry. It was taken on an iPhone. Uh, this is my 88-year-old grandmother, Oma. She is from Germany, and she surprised us two weeks ago. She's from uh, Illinois. 88 years old. She looks pretty young. She gets around really well. Uh, amazing woman. Amazing woman. You can see I like that shirt, too. I'm, I'm wearing it again. At least I washed it, I think. All right? We did wash it. Her husband died shortly after they immigrated to the United States. She raised four children by herself. Her oldest son had died also just a few months prior to her husband's own passing. She's 40 years old. And in 2002, she decided to write down in a little book for our family her story. And last night I asked Jane, I said, hey, let me read that. Let me pull that out. And let me just read just a little bit. Humor me for a second. I know you family albums and family videos are the boringest thing you've ever seen, but June 15, 1985, here's what she writes. The most exciting day of my life is over. Karen, the last of my four children, is married today. She chose a Christian partner, as did the others before her. God honored the promise I gave my dying husband 16 years earlier. Yes, I promised to do all I could to train the children to obey God and to serve him. In the end, God was the one who watched over them and made this come to pass. As I read that, I honestly started to tear up a little bit because I was thinking, here's a woman who endured so much, but yet she said, you know what? Even in the midst of great tragedy, I am still gonna train them. It would have been easy for her to say, you know what? I'm just gonna keep on going. But she said, no, I'm gonna pass down a legacy. And I read this this morning as I was thumbing through the pages. She said in the foreword to my children, writing this, to my grandchildren, and I love this, and to the generations to come. That's her legacy. And she left a verse out of Psalms. I'm going to read it for you as we close. Psalms 16, verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my portion 
and my inheritance. And my cup, thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. She left something more than inheritance. She left a heritage. Parents, your kids don't need your money. They need your moments. They need you to step into their lives. And you may not have children yet, but may you be the type that says, you know what? I want to leave a legacy for generations. I'm a fifth generation Christian. Lord willing, Megan and Austin will be sixth generation because of a woman who said, you know what? Even though it'd be really easy to just say, forget it. Forget it. Why send them to a Christian college? Why try to raise them up in the church? Look what God had done to me. Took away her husband, took away her oldest son. She didn't speak English. She had never worked. And yet she still said, you know what? No, I made a promise. And God was good. Let's pray.